Hello, this is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Doug Groteis. Doug is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and has taught courses in Christian apologetics, issues in philosophy of religion, Christian ethics and modern culture, religious pluralism, and many others. He is the author of a number of books, including On Masking the New Age, Truth Decay, On Pascal, and On Jesus, among others. But of particular note is his newest book, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. This book will be the focus of our interview today. Thanks for joining me again, Doug. It's good to be here. Now, Doug, you've joined me for an interview in the past talking about topics in apologetics, and today we'll be talking about your latest book, one that has been in the works for quite some time, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. This is sort of a magnum opus for you, wouldn't you say? It's certainly the biggest book that I've ever written, and it took me eight and a half years to write. I tried to be as thorough as I could, I think in many ways, the book is an expression of my calling and my deepest passions. Well, it, it certainly is a large and comprehensive book. It's upward of 700 pages, depending on when you count the end. Uh, there's a, appendices and uh, end notes and such. Uh, how long? Uh, you mentioned working on it for eight years. How would you describe your overall purpose for writing it? In one sense, my purpose was to produce an apologetics textbook that I could use for my classes on apologetics at Denver Seminary. I was infamous among the students for assigning five to seven textbooks every time I taught Defending Christian Faith at Denver Seminary. And my colleague, Gordon Lewis, said that after you teach a class for 10 years, you should be able to write a textbook on it. So I came to Denver Seminary in 1993, and in 2003... I decided to write a textbook. I thought it would take perhaps two or three years, maybe be three or four hundred pages. It ended up taking eight and a half years and ended up at 752 pages, if you count the very last page of the index of the book. But, of course, it has a broader purpose of trying to give the most significant and powerful arguments for Christian theism. And that's why the book grew so much, because I wanted to be very thorough. That doesn't mean that I address every objection to Christian theism or every argument for God's existence, but I try to isolate the best and most important arguments for our day for Christianity. Well, the book is split into three sections. Could you outline those and describe that overall structure and your approach to the comprehensive case? Part one is called Apologetic Preliminaries, and that itself is as long as some books in apologetics. But there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed with respect to how ought we defend Christianity as true, rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. So I begin by looking at the question of hope. Is there reason to have hope for oneself and for the universe? I think that is a profound question that resonates in everyone's soul at some level or another. And I say that hope needs to be based on truth, not some kind of romantic aspiration. So I try to set the tone for that such that people will 
be concerned to hold a true and reasonable worldview that gives meaning to life, not meaning without truth or without rationality, but meaning with truth and rationality. Then I give a biblical case for the endeavor of apologetics. Some people deny apologetics. I challenge that. I address apologetic method, evaluating worldviews, what is the Christian worldview. Then I look at some perversions of the Christian worldview, or straw men that people erect and then tear down. I defend objective truth, which is very significant, because if you don't have a concept of objective and knowable truth, you can't really understand the claims of Christianity. And I've dealt with that at greater length in my previous book, Truth Decay, but I summarize that. And then I also make a case that human beings should pursue truth passionately, that it matters, that it's intellectually virtuous to put aside distractions and diversions that would keep us from finding the truth. Rather, we need to earnestly pursue it. And then the last chapter in that first section I deal with the prudential matters of Christianity. Christianity presents itself as not merely one truth among many, but the most important truth, because it addresses matters of life and death and eternity and so on. And then in part two, I call that the case for Christian theism. I defend theistic arguments and I give ontological, cosmological design arguments. I look at Darwinism as a potential defeater or potential objection to Christianity, and I critique that. I give a positive case for intelligent design and show its apologetic implications. Then I give a moral argument for God's existence, the argument from religious experience. I have a chapter on the uniqueness of humanity with respect to consciousness and cognition, and I claim that neither materialism nor pantheism can explain these two vital aspects of the human condition. Then I give Pascal's anthropological argument that the Bible uniquely explains our greatness and our misery. The next chapter is by my esteemed colleague Craig Blomberg and is called Jesus of Nazareth, How Historians Can Know Him and Why It Matters. So he deals there with the historical reliability of the New Testament. Then in chapter 20, I give the claims, credentials, and achievements of Jesus Christ having had Dr. Blomberg establish the reliability of the texts from which we derive our knowledge of Christ. Another chapter is Defending the Incarnation. I claim that the best interpretation of Jesus' life and statements is that he is God incarnate, and in fact that the idea of the God-man is coherent. Some philosophers have claimed that it is incoherent. Then I've got a long chapter on the resurrection of Christ. The last part is objections to Christian theism. I look at religious pluralism. Some people claim that it is unlikely or exceedingly unlikely that there is one true religion. So therefore we have to believe that the sacred or God somehow is found in all the world's religions. I challenge that in that chapter. What follows then is a small chapter called Apologetics and the Challenge of Islam. I look at the claim that Islam has abrogated Christianity, that Islam is the final religion. I challenge that. Then the last substantive chapter is the problem of evil, which is a tremendous objection to Christianity. How could we believe 
in an all-good, all-powerful God with so much evil in the world. So I look at some non-Christian answers to the problem of evil, because every worldview has to grapple with this. And I present the Christian account as making the most sense of God, good and evil. In the final chapter, I review and I challenge people to take this message to the streets, to apply it in every area of their life. Then we have two appendices. I wrote the first one, which is a treatment of the biblical doctrine of hell, defending that. And the second appendix is by my colleague, Dr. Rick Hess, called Apologetic Issues in the Old Testament. He looks at the questions of genocide, slavery, and so on. So that's the book in a nutshell. Now, you'd mentioned, Doug, using this book as a potential textbook. Uh, What kind of need do you see in this area as far as texts that really cover such a wide scope as this? I honestly don't know of one textbook that covers everything that I do in the form of one long argument. There are excellent apologetic books out there. Bill Craig's book, Reasonable Faith, J.P. Moreland's somewhat older book, Scaling the Secular City, and several others. And there's also Norman Geisler's Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. But I think my book is unique in that it is a cumulative case argument. Dr. Geisler's book is very large and very thorough and very helpful in many ways, but it's an encyclopedia, so you look at various entries. And the entries are cross-referenced, which is salutary. I have tremendous respect for the work of, let's say, J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, and I quote them, I cite them quite often in my own book, but I think their books omit some important issues, and you can't cover everything, obviously. I, I have a lot of background, for example, in comparative religion and studying new religious movements. My first several books were critiques of the New Age movement. So I'm very aware and alert not only to the naturalist challenge to Christianity, but the pantheist challenge to Christianity. So I have sections in the book where I critique and challenge a pantheistic view of the problem of evil. Uh, For example, in my argument defending God as the designer, I claim that for God to truly be a designer, he has to be a conscious agent. The God of pantheism is not a conscious agent, but rather an impersonal, amoral something. So I think one area where my book is different is that it includes a critique of pantheism as well as naturalism. But I have the highest respect for my colleagues, such as William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and others, Paul Copan, and so on, in their work in apologetics. And I cite them very freely, and I am certainly indebted to them. Well, I wonder how the book has been received so far and what sort of positive feedback you've heard. The book's only been out for about one month, so there has been, I have not seen any academic reviews yet. There have been a couple of blog reviews and a few reviews on Amazon. So far, I have 41 likes on Amazon and two positive reviews, but it's too early in the game to really say. One of the things that we had talked about in our previous interview was you had mentioned spiritual disciplines, and 
you said how study can be worship to God. I was wondering if you could talk just a bit about that idea and how it might relate to reading and studying in this subject of Christian apologetics. In the past 20 to 25 years, evangelicals have rediscovered the spiritual disciplines, such as more of a focus on prayer, solitude, service, and so on. Sometimes what's lacking in that is a theology and practice of the life of the mind. And here I mean critical thinking, growing in knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of our world. We should understand spiritual formation, that is being conformed to the likeness of Christ, in such a way that we develop the mind of Christ. To use one of Paul's phrases that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I tell my students at Denver Seminary that their academic study should not be separated from their spiritual lives, that this is part of their sanctification, that growing in the knowledge of the Bible, of theology, of apologetics, of church history, and so on, is vital to becoming more Christ-like to become more godly in our character. Sadly, many evangelicals have had a split between the spiritual and the intellectual. But Jesus brings down that barrier because he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the vertical and then the horizontal to love our neighbor as ourself in light of our supreme love and dedication to God. Well, I think that that's excellent, and I think it applies to the reading of a work like this. And as you know, Apologetics 315 is, is launching a new weekly feature, and that's read along with Apologetics 315. And we'll be doing a sort of group book study using your book, Christian Apologetics, and we'll be reading through the book one chapter a week, which I think is probably a nice doable pace for most everyone, so that they can handle it even with their own reading. And each week we'll offer a brief synopsis of each chapter, a quick introduction by you, as well as some study questions. And I wonder, Doug, what you think the reader should look forward to gaining, in light of what you mentioned there about spiritual disciplines, from doing a thorough chapter-by-chapter study of a book like this? One part of being conformed to the image of Christ and being submitted to the Holy Spirit and growing in godliness is growing in our ability to understand and defend the Christian message. Peter says that we should always be ready to explain to people who ask us what the reason for our hope is. We should be able to give an answer when people question us about the meaning of our beliefs. That's First Peter 3:15. And 16 says that we should do this with gentleness and respect. So Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are being severely tested, terribly persecuted, and he's telling them to have a reason for the hope that is within them. That reason is Jesus Christ. He gives us hope and meaning and perseverance. But the next question by an unbeliever could very well be, why then believe in Jesus? Someone might say, A lot of fictional ideas can give you hope and encouragement. You could, in fact, be wrong. You may have based your hope in a falsehood. That's where apologetics engages. No, the reason for my hope 
is true and rational, to use a phrase that Paul used in the book of Acts. So I think by studying this book over time, patiently, in depth, and with other people, you can grow in the spiritual discipline of apologetics, meaning you can have a better case for the truth, the compelling rationality, and the pertinence of the Christian faith. You'll be less timid, less fearful, less awkward as you become an advocate for Christ in the world of ideas. That's my hope. It's a very big book. And right now, in many ways, we're fighting for the sensibilities of the book, meaning we live now in a very hyper-connected digital era. And various writers such as Carr in his book, The Shallows, and uh, Tim Challies in his book, The Next Story, and others are pointing out that in many ways, this ultra-connectedness through the Internet is eroding our attention. It tends to shorten our attention spans such that we want things in short, dramatic, spectacular bursts. We want short text messages. We revel often in factoids. And I think many Americans and many Westerners are hyper-connected, hyperactive, well-informed ignoramuses because receiving information is not the same as gaining knowledge, let alone developing wisdom. So having access and greater access to information can be a benefit, but not if it fails to turn into knowledge, because knowledge is something like justified or warranted true belief. Just having a true belief is not knowledge, necessarily. Moreover, having the awareness of all kinds of factoids and all kinds of images is not the same as being rightly related to, to reality cognitively. So this book is text. If you want to benefit from this book, you have to be willing to immerse yourself in a tremendous amount of text. There's precisely one diagram in the book. There are no illustrations. There are subtitles, there are no call-outs, and my chapters in the book have 1,640 footnotes. And those footnotes often contain annotations, sometimes even mini-essays. Therefore, you need quite a bit of commitment and dedication to study this book properly. Yes, you can dip into it, you can use the index, you can use the glossary to find out some key terms, and so on. Despite that, I think the book is approachable to the thoughtful person. I was very flattered when Sean McDowell, in his endorsement of my book, said that I had the rare ability to introduce people to a challenging subject but also to give enough meat and substance to people who are already well-versed in apologetics. I hope that's true. That's my goal for the book. Well, you know, the last thing I would want to see happen is various people who are interested or keyed in on apologetics say, wow, that looks like a, a phenomenal book and it's huge, but it sounds great, I'll get it, and then it just sits on their shelf and they don't pick it up because it's just too big. So my hope is 
that through these 26 chapters, one a week, which will take six months, that we can do something that is kind of counter to the digital age that you're talking about there, that we can work through something together and everyone can learn in a sort of uh, community sort of way. And so I would want to encourage people who are considering reading along with us that uh, the chapters are quite manageable. Each chapter is broken into various sections. And, you know, maybe a good game plan would be to just read a chunk a day along with their devotions or their normal reading or set aside certain times a day just to read a piece of that chapter to make it more manageable. That was one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, what would your encouragement be for people who look at a, a book of this size and they, they are feeling a little bit uh, apprehensive? I think you simply have to break it up into manageable chunks and maintain some progress. When I read large books, I may set a goal of trying to read 10 pages a day, 15 pages a day. And even if I don't meet that goal, I try to keep progressing through the book. If you go several weeks without reading the book, you may lose the flow of the book. And really, Brian, I think what you're doing on the Internet is a fruitful marriage of the book and the digital because you're using the Internet in a very intentional, thoughtful way. You're using it to help initiate people into the deeper knowledge that they can find in a substantial book. So we're on the Internet right now. I obviously cannot condemn the whole thing when I'm on it and when we're talking about a book, but the tendencies for many people are not good for learning. That is to fragment knowledge, to multitask, and you really can't multitask philosophy or apologetics. But if you're looking at a large-scale work, you need to be patient. Patience is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And I often tell my students that we need intellectual patience. We need patience when we drive. We need patience with our family. We need patience with our taxes and so on. We also need patience in our learning. Things may be difficult. With philosophy, you probably need to read very slowly, much more slowly than you would read another kind of writing. And this is a philosophical book. I'm applying philosophical arguments to the defense of Christianity. So it is a matter of discipline. And I hope people will be drawn into the book. I don't think it's dry. I think it's approachable. I think it's written with some feeling and passion. A lot of that I credit to my wife, Rebecca Merrill Grothuis, who edited the entire book and made sure that it was understandable and readable. And when she would edit a chapter, the thing I feared the most is a question mark next to a paragraph, which means it's not clear, Doug. You need to clarify this and make it more approachable and understandable. Well, Doug... I really want to thank you for all the time and labor and study that you've put into this book, and as you mentioned, your wife as well. I know many who have already ordered the book and others who are planning to, so I'm hoping that they will really benefit from it 
and I also am hoping that they'll leave positive reviews on Amazon. So thanks again, Doug, and we're looking forward to reading it. You're welcome, and I'm very happy to talk with you, Brian. I've been speaking with Dr. Doug Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. You can find his resources, blog, and books all linked at today's blog post at Apologetics 315. I want to encourage you to take part in the Read Along with Apologetics 315 initiative and pick up your own copy of Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith from Amazon and start reading along a chapter a week with other blog readers. Maybe you're strong in certain areas of apologetics and want to gain a better overview in the subject. Or perhaps you're a beginner and it's time to do some directed study. This is the sort of initiative that will help you keep your pace and enjoy the interaction from those who are passionate about the subject and working through the same content. I hope you'll take part and encourage others to do so as well. If you've enjoyed this interview... I want to encourage you to share it with a friend via Facebook or Twitter, and be sure to subscribe to Apologetics 315 interviews in iTunes. Podcast episodes are released weekly, one day in advance of their blog posting. This is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315, and thanks for listening.